Um, any other questions about turning in SOA work? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll hold that till later. Everyone, welcome. Welcome to those of you online. We are uh, going into week two of our series on Acts. We will be going through the book of Acts for the entire school year. So there's 28 chapters of Acts. We're going to have about 28 lectures on Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2 today. Our approach is, is an academic approach where we go verse by verse and we look at the scriptures and sometimes uncover um, uh, you know, controversies and things like that and just deeper theological issues that arise. Um, and then uh, just knowing our visionary leader, we're going to get some preaching, we're going to get some impartation, it's, it's inevitable. So we really get the best of both worlds. For those of you listening online, consider this a free college course um, on the book of Acts. You can audit the course for free. Um, you can find us, if you do Apple Podcasts, find Metro Praise International, and you can find our chapels there, or you can go through our Facebook page, and our Facebook Live sermons are posted there. So uh, we're going to keep you know, churning those out week by week throughout the school year, and you can uh, feel free to tag along. So I'm real excited for today. Acts chapter 2 gives us the grounds for what I like to call the Pentecostal experience it's the experience of empowerment, being clothed with power from on high by the Holy Spirit with evidence of speaking in other tongues. This passage is going to teach us that it's a promise for all who are far off, for all who the Lord will call. So this is really going to be foundational teaching for us who are spirit-filled believers. We've got any spirit-filled Christians here? Amen. Amen. Let's welcome up our visionary leader, Pastor Joe Y. Rostek. Good, sir. Let's give it up for Jared as well. Okay, everybody open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2. Let's get started. Had a little bit of technical difficulties today. Acts chapter 2 is an exciting chapter in the book of Acts. We're going to be able to see the Pentecostal handbook uh, come to life right here. So let's start in Acts chapter 2. It's going to give us the historical description of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit Peter's presentation, uh, Peter's preaching rather, representing the inauguration of the church and the description of the early church. It's one of our longer chapters in the book, and so let's get right into it. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, like a blowing, like the blowing of a violent wind came, excuse me, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We see that this day the Holy Spirit is poured out on is Pentecost. Pentecost, another name for it would be Feast of Weeks or Shavuot. Everybody say Shavuot. Shavuot. 
Shavuot in Hebrew, a festival celebrating harvest time that came 50 days, penti, which is 50, or seven weeks after Passover. Seven times seven is 49. On the 50th day was the day of Pentecost. And that's where it gets its nickname, Feast of, or Festival of Weeks. And it was one of the main seven Jewish feasts of Israel. Now, if you look at the Bible... All these feasts are fulfilled in Christ Jesus, at, and the, the ones that have already been fulfilled, and then there's some future ones that are going to be fulfilled. So all of them are in Christ now, and some are already coming about, like Passover, like uh, uh, the, the festival here of weeks, and then the next one probably will be the Feast of Trumpets, and so forth. And these are all coming about because of Jesus, but they're in Jesus now. Everybody say, in Jesus Thank you. From this time forward, after this point in the book of Acts, we now see a pattern. Number one, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given after regeneration. And then number two, speaking in tongues is in unlearned languages as a sign. So number one, the pattern is the baptism of the Holy Spirit is given after regeneration. And number two, people then speak in unlearned languages. If you go just quickly to John 20... John 20, verse 22, you see that the people were given regeneration, the disciples were given regeneration at Jesus' resurrection appearance. And uh, verse 22 says, and with that he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So we need to take notice that there are two distinct works of the Holy Spirit. One, to be born again by the Spirit. And then the second is to be baptized by the Spirit. Look with me to Acts chapter 1 verse 5. You'll see this language that Jesus uses. Nowhere in the first chapter of Acts does Jesus correlate the Holy Spirit to their salvation. So anybody who wants to try to make other correlations to the Holy Spirit's baptism, meaning salvation, are committing eisegesis. They are breaking the rules of hermeneutics. They are breaking the context of Jesus. They're breaking the context of Luke, the author, and the rest of all Scripture. Jesus said in Acts 1.5, For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. According to Jesus, were they already born of the Spirit? Yes, in John 20, verse 22, he breathed on them and they were given spiritual rebirth. So what is he talking about here when he says baptized with the Spirit? Is he talking about here them being born again? No, because just in the next few verses, 7 and onward, he says you are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Not you're going to be born again, not that you will have an internal relationship with the Holy Spirit. You will receive power. Now going back to our passage in Acts chapter 2, when they receive the Holy Spirit, are they born again? No, they receive power and speak in other tongues. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not related to salvation. It is subsequent and after salvation. And that is what the author Luke will show us in the examples throughout the book of Luke. So let us just jump ahead to one, Acts 10, 44. 
in Acts 10.44, we see in Cornelius' house, they accept the word of God, and then they are baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Look at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on them, all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Is this the experience of people who are born again? When you are born again, do you instantly start speaking in tongues? No. And that's the confusion that the oneness Pentecostal has, which we'll deal with a little bit later in this chapter, that they think you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus, speak in tongues, and repent of your sins to be saved. They are wrong on all three accounts. But the one place that they make the same mistake of the Baptist is that the Baptist says the baptism of the Holy Spirit is equivalent to salvation. Well, then if that is true, the Pentecostal is right, and tongues must be present then when you're saved. Do you guys see the mistake that both the Baptist and the oneness Pentecostal make? Equating the baptism of the Holy Spirit with salvation. That is not the intent of the author. That is not the intent of Jesus. No, the inspired Holy Spirit speaking to us through the Scripture. It is clear and evident. Let us look again at Acts 19.5. In Acts 19.5, when Paul uh, prays for those who had received John's baptism to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we'll talk about that, meaning the authority of the Lord Jesus, but the formula still being Father, Son, Spirit. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. And there was about 12 men in all. So we have a problem here when the people want to start telling us that speaking in tongues, the baptism, or rather the baptism of the Holy Spirit is equivalent to salvation because now we must expect that every time this people speak in tongues. Their way around that is to say, the Baptist or the non-Pentecostal, is to say, well, this was just a sign to the early church of salvation and it discontinued. But that is an error because in the book of Corinthians, The Holy Spirit's gifts are still there upon all the believers. They don't lack any gift. And Paul there never equates speaking in tongues or interpretation of tongues of any or any of those things with salvation. So it is an error to do so. So what is the pattern we should see in the Pentecostal handbook? When the Holy Spirit baptizes believers, they will speak in new tongues. The Holy Spirit baptizes believers, and they speak in new tongues. That is the pattern. Now notice that all the believers were filled with the Spirit and given the same experience. When you go back up to verse 4, it says, All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And by the way, filled with the Holy Spirit, according to the Pentecostal handbook, is equivalent to the phrase, baptized with the Holy Spirit. So it is appropriate to ask the people that you know in your life that are Christians, have you been filled with the Spirit or have you been baptized with the Spirit. If they get offended and say, well, of course, because I've been born again, you are right to explain to them from the Pentecostal handbook that they are not experiencing what the Bible calls being filled with the Holy Spirit or baptized with the Holy Spirit, because those terms are synonymous with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. It is never equated with salvation. And so we move on now. 
Verse 5, now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't these all who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each one of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Judea, rather, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia... Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. And so we see that the upper room experience where they were praying at now goes into the streets into the festival of Pentecost while the people are there celebrating in Jerusalem the Feast of Weeks for the time of harvest. The supernatural gifts of unlearned languages was understood by the many different nations represented at the festival. So this is something that we need to take note of. This was a special manifestation of the actual languages they were speaking, and it was understood by people there. However, from this point forward, there is no mention in any of the other experiences of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, evidence was speaking other tongues, that the hearers understood them without another operating in the spiritual gift of interpretation of tongues. So we know according to 1 Corinthians 14, 28, that there is the gift of tongues and the gift of interpretation of tongues. That is because the gift of tongues is not understood by men. Therefore, there needs to be a spiritual interpreter. Spiritual language, spiritual interpretation. We know those are the gifts of the Spirit mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. However, this is not that kind of gift because the ones present hear the tongues in their actual language. Now, what's unique about this is I have actually been used in this rare manifestation on two separate occasions when people from India understood my prayer language in their language. Here is a testimony from a person who witnessed one of those occasions. Let me read to you the testimony from Brother Glenn Badonsky while we were in Bible college. In 1997, during a dorm prayer meeting, I was witness to the usage of tongues in a dynamic way that I had only ever read about. There were gathered about 15 to 20 students in a room doing a Bible study together. Towards the end, we began to sing and pray together. One student, Joe Irostic, was worshiping and then began praying in tongues. One of the students in the room was Abraham, who was from India. He was a newer student to the school and was not very interested in the full gospel aspect of the school, the Pentecostal aspect. I asked about this and his reasoning, uh, and his reasoning be- behind it on a prior occasion behind it. So he wanted to know the reasoning behind this on a prior occasion. His reply was that in his country, many of the Hindu priests use this babbling too. He thought it was not godly and at the least demonically influenced. 
I tried to reason with him from the scriptures, but he was firmly set in his heart that this gift was not from God or for today's Christian. After the meeting concluded, I could see that Abraham was troubled by something as he did not leave the room immediately as he usually did. I asked him what was wrong, and he told me that he had never experienced God in such a way. Noticing how seriously he spoke, I asked him to explain further. He explained that during the meeting... During the meeting, in his mind, he was ridiculing the tongues he heard others speaking in, and then Brother Joe began to pray, and that he could understand him in his own Indian language and village dialect. I asked him to share with me what Joe was saying. He said Joe was saying, this is real, and this is from God, at least four or five times perfectly. There you see, in my own personal life, the experience of this gift in this way. So something special is happening on the day of Pentecost, whereas the tongue is not meant for God as a spiritual language, nor meant to be interpreted spiritually for other people as a prophecy. Here, the tongue is literally the gift of another language given to the people. Also, according to Paul, Tongues is primarily meant to be a form of worship and prayer not understood by men. Only when it is given as a message with interpretation does it have the same function as prophecy. Let us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2. You will see the primary function for the gift of tongues. The primary function for the gift of tongues is to be between man and God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 2 says... For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. How many people understand the one speaking in tongues? How many people understand the one speaking in tongues? How many? Once again, how many people understand the one speaking in tongues? No one. Not the person speaking nor the listener. So obviously, this experience of Acts chapter 2 is a unique anomaly, something that God did as a special sign during the first outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as we know now from experience in the time of the Azusa Street Revival and other times and places like with myself, it can be done. But it is not the normative experience. It is not the descriptive experience, not only in the book of Acts, but also in Paul's description in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. When we speak in tongues, you will not understand, nor will anyone else understand. That is why they are to ask for God to interpret it. Either the one present speaking, uh, the one speaking presently, or someone sitting and listening. The one who speaks in a tongue, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be edified. And then it goes on into singing in the Spirit and, it's ta and praying in the Spirit. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. And so it is clear from Paul that you can turn on and turn off the ability to pray and sing in the Spirit, and no one will understand you, including you. 
And so further on down in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says that unless there is an interpretation, that this kind of praying and singing is to remain between them and God. So what shall I do? I'll pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my understanding. I will sing with my understanding. I'll sing with my spirit, etc. And then he says right here, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. And then he says here as well that the tongues is a sign for the unbelievers. Prophecy is for the believers. And then when he says here that, um, and I'm trying to find it here, that the person should pray and keep it. There we go. In verse 28, if there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Now, you notice right here it says keep quiet in the church. And so now the spirit light people would say, only tongues with interpretation can ever be spoken in the church. And they just say the keep quiet part. But they mix the and. And speak to himself and to God. Does everybody get that? That and there is important. So what is the, the point that Paul is making? I do not speak to the church in a spiritual tongue unless it's interpreted. Therefore, they can understand it. Otherwise, I'm trying to communicate to you in a spiritual language that no one understands. It will sound just like babble. That's what he's talking about there. But what do I do with my spiritual tongue in church? I pray to who? God. I speak the tongue to God with myself and to God. So just like how we have times in church where we say pray to yourself and to God. There can be Hundreds of people in the room, everybody lift up a prayer. I pray for Chicago. I pray for my family. It's between you and God. You can do the same thing in the spirit. Pray in tongues to your, uh, with yourself to God. Sing in tongues with yourself to God. Now in the public meeting, we're going to pray, and we want you to agree with us and say, amen, I need to pray in a language you understand, not praying in tongues. If I do, the moment I make a public address in the tongue, I need to make sure there's an interpretation. Can I hear an amen? So it's important to know how that works. Let's continue on. <clears throat> Excuse me, verse 14. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. So now Peter is going to start preaching, Lawrence, and it's important that preachers get rest because we never know when we'll be called on in season or out of season to preach. So what if the Lord brought upon us right now the spirit of Pentecost? Would you be able to rush out into these streets and start quoting Scripture from heart, or would you be too tired to remember that's why you have to stay alert and awake and come ready and prepared. Amen? Especially when you're gathering together with the body of believers. And so what we are going to see here, just something I want you to think about, I didn't put in the notes, that is how did these apostles know all of the interpretation of the prophetic literature? I believe that, yes, they can be led by the Spirit in the moment, and God certainly did that. But I believe during those 40 days post-Jesus' resurrection, he's giving them Bible studies. I believe Jesus probably went through 300 prophecies, major passages, explaining and alliterating to them the beauty of these passages. And so, uh, once again, he's going to start preaching here. And notice another side point that I didn't put in my notes. He's doing it from memory. He's doing this from memory. He's not holding a scroll saying, Joel said this, David said this. He doesn't have it on his phone. He is doing it from memory. Hide the Word of God within your heart. Meditate upon His Word day and night. Amen? Learn how to quote the Scripture. And what's encouraging to me 
is not once in any of the New Testament references of the Old Testament do they ever give chapter and verse. You know why? Because they didn't exist at that time. And so that's my reasoning for not counting it very serious now. And so oftentimes you'll debate with a Muslim or a cult member and they'll be bragging about chapter and verse, chapter and verse. And it's like, I don't need to know chapter and verse. I just need to know it is written. That's how Jesus came against the devil. It is written. That's how he just said, it's written. I know it's in there and this is what it says, okay? It is written. Man shall not live by bread alone. It is written. And so uh, some of you may be more technical than that. And if you're in our 201 class, we do ask you to learn those technicalities and I've had to do it as well. But in my common practice of 20 plus years, I have memorized scripture and not considered the chapter and verse very important. But Jared has, and he's a better man at that than me. Jared is always chapter and verse. And the one problem with my methodology is if you're looking for it, it's a little bit hard sometimes. But if you know chapter and verse, chapter and verse, you can get there. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Now remember, we never live, uh, look for manifestations, okay? Maybe they might have been stumbling, laughing, giggling, but that's not the important thing here. That wasn't important to them, shouldn't be important to us. Uh, all the revivalists of the past said, whether you have manifestations or don't have manifestations, it means nothing, okay? Sometimes you fall down, go boom. Sometimes you cry. Sometimes you laugh. Sometimes you run around the room. Sometimes you stand still. The most important thing is, is God moving in your heart, and are you doing what he told you to do? Amen? Okay, it's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's references in Joel 28, chapter 2, 28 through 32. Excuse me, can I get my water in the back there? It's, a little dust came right in there. Peter uses the interpretive method of now and not yet. This is the same thing that Joel is doing in that time. And that's basically Joel combined by God's Holy Spirit as he wrote the prophecy that the church age would come first and then God's judgment. The church age is seen in verses 17 and 18 with the pouring out of the Spirit. Notice that it's upon all genders, male and female. Notice it's upon all ages. And then notice that it was upon, thank you, all people groups, economic classes, both bond and free, okay? And we know upon all what we would say cultures, because there's only one race, the human race. That would go without saying, but it comes later in the book of Acts. But uh, to, the, to the New Testament believer, that would not have even made sense to them. Uh, for you to have looked at a person with black skin or light skin and thought they were of a different race, that would have been foolish to them. Like I said before in times past on this subject, Moses married an Ethiopian, okay? What did Moses look like before? Uh, what did Moses look like? We have no idea um, how dark the skin the Ethiopian was. We have no idea. But uh, whatever his children looked like, I'm sure they were mixed. And it was no big deal. It was never an issue. The only problem with that in the Bible was that he married a non-Jewish person, an Ethiopian. It had nothing to do with skin color, okay? And we see this all throughout the Bible, the intermarrying as well. 
uh, uh, with lighter-skinned people, the, the, the people that would have been more in the Persian Empire. Well, that probably would have been more of the Jewish uh, context, but the Babylonian, and the problems there of the intermarrying was that they were doing it with pagans. So once again, when you were uh, looking across the people of Israel in their tribes, there wouldn't have been one skin tone. There wouldn't have been one look to them. They would have been like today you see in the Dominican Republic or a place like Puerto Rico just or like a church like this. It would have, it would have mattered nothing to them. So we need to stop being so race-orientated and be God-orientated. Amen. Stop looking at people on the outside. That's not even important to God. It shouldn't be important to us. But we should fight against injustices and the stupidity and the wickedness of people who do that. But anybody who says that being colorblind is somehow uh, not appropriate, they themselves are unbiblical. If they want you to be fixated on race, they are the racist, okay? So we should not see the colors. And this was, once again, the stance of Martin Luther King Jr. He did not want you to see him as a black man. He wanted you to see him by the character that was in his life. So don't see me as a white man. See me as a character, as a person, as an actual uh, embodiment of values and ideas. Now, what we can all do is appreciate our culture, but you don't know somebody's culture by simply looking at their skin. Somebody with dark skin, what we would call black, could have Brought, been brought up in an all-white community, you know, I mean, so you're like, I want to appreciate your Afro culture, and they may say, like, I was right next to you, I have the same culture as you do, I speak the language you do, I eat where you eat, I shop where you shop, I like the music you like, I mean, what other culture, oh, your African heritage, you know, the, my African heritage, I'm as disconnected, from, they may say to you, I'm as disconnected from my African heritage as you are to your Scottish heritage, right? Now, once again, there may be, like we see in Chicago, groups of people living in a community, well, then that's okay, all the African Americans, they like a certain kind of food, they talk a certain kind of way, well, that, that's a culture there. Well, no different than the Italian-Americans, the Greek-Americans. And so, once again, we don't judge each other based on those things. We can just appreciate each other. And uh, as I've done before, traveled overseas, if I traveled with you as an African-American, as I've done with Latinos, it wouldn't matter. If, I, if we went to India together, China together, some of these places, we would be considered American. They wouldn't consider you African because they deal with real Africans there. So to, to the Indian, to the Chinese, you, you would be an American. You would just be a dark-skinned American, a light-skinned, a brown-skinned, you are an American. You talk like an American. You watch the sports of an American. You eat like an American. You listen to American music. You know, you're not watching Bollywood with them, in other words, right? So, so this, is I, this idea was more important to them to understand Jew and Gentile, not color. It was Jew, God's people, and everybody else, Jew and not Jew, you know? And so it, this was their context, and as we're going to see, it goes on Gentiles as well as it gets into Cornelius's house in the future in the book of Acts. And then males were looked at as being more superior because uh, of God's blessing upon the men and all of these things. But now God is saying, no, I'm pouring it out upon the women as well. And so what was important to them was to understand Jew and Gentile, and God is saying everybody gets it the same now. And another important factor to them would have been male and female, and he says everybody gets it the same. And that's why I believe in women in the ministry because this is the, the call of prophetic ministry. This is how priests and kings were anointed to do ministry by the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying it's not just priests and kings. It's just not just priests, kings, prophets, rather. This is for everybody. This is men and women. So now everybody is a priest, king, prophet in the sense of ruling 
ruling and reigning with Christ, having authority over the nations to make disciples that make disciples. We can get into women in the ministry as we deal with it further in, in, in different contexts. But I just want everybody to see that. Verse 22 and onward, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you with, by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made, me to, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God, raised, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and he has poured out what you now see and hear. Just a side note, notice the Trinity there. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then also notice that it's also the Son who sends the Holy Spirit. So if we were drawing the triangle of the Trinity, it would be Father, Son, Holy Spirit down here. And that was a controversy in the early church. Was it the Father only that sent the Holy Spirit or the Father and Son that sent the Holy Spirit? And we believe it's the Father. Father and Son. Father, in chapter 1 of Acts, by Jesus' words, the gift the Father will send. And then here, Jesus being attributed to sending it in Acts chapter 2. Remember, Jesus is the He there. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, and it's the same He there, and He, which would be assumed there, and He has poured out what you now see and hear, because He is the subject that the Father gave the Holy Spirit to pour out, Okay. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let Israel, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. A lot said right there, but basically Peter quotes two passages from David that they would have thought attributed uh, that, that were going to apply to David, and now he shows them, no, this was not David for David's sake prophesying this. This, is, was, this was for the Messiah, and this could only be Jesus because Jesus was raised from the dead. Peter explained to them that Jesus' crucifixion was always a part of God's plan. Just like with Joseph in Genesis 50, 20, God used the free will choices of wicked people to bring about his plan of deliverance. Let's turn to Genesis 50, 20 to get an understanding of how God moves in the world via people's wickedness. He does not make them do the wicked thing. He uses the wicked thing for his good. He is not responsible for their wicked decisions. He just foreknows them and uses them for his good. The Calvinist is wrong to think that God ordains in the sense of predetermines by making things happen. God does not have to make it happen for it to happen. What is a better chess player? 
the chess player that plays against himself and makes sure his victory, or the chess player who knows your moves ahead of your moves and makes sure that he wins no matter what you move? Which one shows more power? The one who plays against himself or the one who plays against you? God is not playing against himself, predetermining everything to the meticulous detail of what he wants. He gave man free will and lets them do what they want, which is sometimes not what he wants. But he uses what they do against his will for his greater glory, so in the end, he still gets what he wants. He wanted Joseph to be in Egypt. He did not want the brothers to put him into a pit and sell him into slavery. But he used their wicked jealousy to do those things for his glory, how great our God is. He is not only sovereign in the way that he can do whatever he wants, but he is also powerful that he can be sovereign enough to give you a choice to do what you want, and at the end he still gets what he wants or decrees and declares to be his plan. You intended, Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for my good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. For the Calvinist or the fatalist who think that God does both good and evil and is responsible for every action misses the context of this. They commit eisegesis. They say because God intended it for good that God must have intended the harm. But that is not what the passage says. The passage says you intended the harm. God intended it for good. What does that simply mean? God uses bad intentions for his good. In his sovereignty, he gave man dominion over the earth to do what they wanted with it. Yet he drew out the boundaries, he drew out the plan, and then used whatever they would do for his own glory and actualized a world in which he wins, in which the plan wins. The plan of salvation comes forth. And that's why wicked men, not God, crucified Jesus, but God used wicked men to crucify him and count it as the atonement and the, the um, redemption for mankind. Now we move on. Peter's first quote from David was from Psalm 16, 8 through 11 and applied to Jesus the Messiah because he was sinless. He was raised from the dead and now he can forever reign on David's throne. You see in 2 Samuel 7, 16 that he has promised David that someone will always rule on his throne. How can someone always rule on his throne if people must die? Well, someone must be raised from the dead and never have death have power, never let death have power over them. Who is that? That is Jesus. That's why it says that David did go to the grave. David's body did suffer decay, but did Jesus' body suffer decay? So no, he didn't. So now he can be the one made of flesh from the line of David that can now rule and reign. Now remember this as we talk to Muslims and they say, if Jesus was always God, why is the Father giving him all of these things if he already had it? 
the ability to be a king, the ability to have authority over all the earth. Once again, it's a, such a simple answer. The Son had all of these things, John 17, but when He comes in the flesh, Philippians 2, He sets them all aside. Matthew 28 and Daniel 7, He gets them back as the God-man for the sake of humanity. Okay, get that in your understanding and shut down any arguments that try to say Jesus became something and that somehow now, because Jesus became a king, Jesus becomes this, God gives him stuff, that somehow he wasn't all-powerful, all-knowing. No, as the Son, second person in the Trinity, equal with the Father who always had it, he received it as a man. That is why uh, Peter is quoting David here and showing as a man he now sits on the throne of David. That was the promise. Not that God would sit on the throne, but a descendant of David would sit on the throne. That is why the son became fully man. 100% God, 100% man. The second quote is from Psalm 110. One, and that's the most important one you need to remember in dealing with Jehovah Witnesses and other cults that deny Jesus' deity. This was his favorite psalm that he used to teach his deity in his preexistence. You can see Mark 12, 35 through 37. And I have a great article on this psalm from Sam Shimon, which deals with it apologetically. You can hit that link there. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. How could David's son also be David's Lord? That was the way Jesus would approach it apologetically. How can David, a descendant of David, also be David's Lord? Is because God pre-existing, the son, comes in the flesh through the lineage of David and now becomes David's king, the ruling and reigning Messiah, king of kings and lord of lords. Does everybody get that? And when David calls him my Lord, that is not a lesser title than it is for Yahweh. Yahweh said to my Adon, sit at my right hand. And throughout the Psalms, David says he only has one Adonai, one Adon. And that is, that is Yahweh. And so, yes, there may be a little uh, verif a difference of verbiage there from Adon to Adonai to Adonai, etc. But the root word is still Adon. The Lord Yahweh said to my Adon, and David only has one Adon in the Psalms, and that is God. So he sees the separate persons of God, and that is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Psalm 110 is an amazing passage. Study this uh, link if you want more on that. Now Paul's uh, Peter's declaration, rather, at the end, he is both Lord and Messiah, is an affirmation of Jesus' deity. If you go to Joel chapter 2, verse 32... Joel chapter 2, verse 32, says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is also used in Romans. But the name of the Lord, who is the Lord there reference? When you see it in all capitals, you know that that is not just talking about a master or a boss like a landlord. That is the divine name of God given to the Israelites, Yohevahe, Yahweh. So now Jesus... His name is equivalent now to the name of Yahweh. Through His name, all men are saved. At the name of who? All knees will bow and tongues confess. Jesus. At the name of Jesus. 
we are saved. There you go. Verse 37 and onward, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now we have learned baptized in the Holy Spirit by Acts chapter 1, filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Now Peter calls it the gift of the Holy Spirit, all speaking about the subsequent work of the Holy Spirit after being saved. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children, and for all who are afar off, and for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter concluded with a call to repentance, and after the, after the crowd asked him what they had to do to be saved. Now notice this as we come against the oneness Pentecostal doctrine. Generally, they're the ones who don't wear the makeup. The women have really long hair. They have the skirts on. They teach from this. Acts 2, 38 is their favorite passage. You have to repent, be baptized in Jesus' name, and speak in tongues to be saved. All of that is incorrect because they're isolating the passage and not seeing the full context. Peter neither taught salvation was by works nor another way to be baptized than what Jesus taught in Matthew 28, 19. Jesus already told us baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Faith is how we are saved, and repentance, a work after faith, were key concepts that the disciples taught in regards to salvation, sometimes emphasizing one over the other according to the need of their audience. It seems that they had already had faith in Jesus because they were convicted wanting now to be saved since it said whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So now he's saying to people believing in Jesus, repent. He's saying to the ones who are believing, repent. But if you look just to Acts 15, 9, same author, and Paul, uh, Peter talking, same speaker, same author. Look at how Peter describes what happens at Cornelius' house and how people are purified of sin. He's telling the Jerusalem council that Gentiles got baptized in the Holy Ghost and saved just like them. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by what? Did he purify their heart by repentance? Did he purify their heart by baptism? No, they, he purified, God purified their hearts by faith. So once again, all Peter is doing is just attributing a work of salvation to what they need to do since they now are convicted and are believing in Jesus. Repent then. Be baptized, get filled with the Holy Ghost. To start from the beginning, saying believe might have been redundant. For whatever reason, we trust the Lord. It just wasn't needed to be there. In other places, uh, Peter d uh, does say to the jailer, believe and you and your household shall be saved. Find that for me, what, where that is. And you see this all throughout the book of Acts. Even uh, Paul in Acts 20, verse 21. Acts 20, verse 21. Look at what Paul says here. I have declared to both Jew and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. There's both of them being mentioned. But what must come first? Faith comes before the repentance. Okay, does anybody have that passage for me? You and your whole household will be saved. You've got to Google it. Acts what? 
1631. Next time I need your help, don't look for it in the actual scripture. Google it. Googling will get you there a lot faster. All I do, just a little quick hint, guys, I'll just put right in the search bar of Google, you and your household will be saved. Boom. It will come right up, Acts 1631. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved. Okay? And I believe that is uh, Paul there. I said Peter. So once again, there is no contradiction. It is just emphasizing different parts when it is needed. And baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ meant in the authority of Jesus Christ in contrast to John's baptism as mentioned in Acts 19.3. Listen to how people spoke in those days because there was many different kinds of baptism, baptisms going on. So Paul asked them, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Now Paul says, John's baptism was this kind of a baptism of repentance. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, he is talking about the authority of Jesus under his teaching, be given his baptism. But how did Jesus teach us to baptize? In the name of Jesus no, he said baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. How did John baptize? We don't know the exact words that John said, but we know John had a baptism. What kind of baptism did Jesus have? In the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? Say amen. Amen. Peter, I keep wanting to say Paul. Peter made it clear that the gift of the Holy Spirit is a promise for all whom the Lord our God will call. In other words, until the end of the age. There it's clearly said to us that as many as the Lord our God will call, he will give them this gift. Now we'll save the rest of the verses for next week because I do want to go through all 10 of these things that are described in chapter 2. So we'll take this as a God thing that we started a little late and I'll continue on with those things. And we have a few weeks of Lanyap to, to fill in, and I think this will be helpful. So to summarize it all up, we see that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. The disciples are filled, baptized, given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They speak in other tongues as the Lord gives them the utterance. As they do, people come to gather around them. They hear the gospel, the glories of God being given in their known language. You've heard about how that correlates to my life and others. And then Peter begins to preach, and he starts explaining from Joel and two passages of David who Jesus was. They get convicted. They want to get saved. And Peter tells Tells them how to get saved. They have to call on Jesus, believe in him, repent, be baptized, and then they too can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now the promise is not just for them, it's for as many as the Lord our God will call. So it's for male and female and for every generation. And so this should be encouraging to us that 3,000 people got saved that day because I want to see thousands saved today. I want to see thousands saved when we go to Wright College. I want to see them saved, sanctified, cleansed from their sin and filled with the Holy Ghost. That is what the Pentecostal handbook teaches us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for your precious word, the description that we have of this awesome moment in history. We pray, Lord, that you would 
Pour out your spirit again in such a way that we would see what they saw, O oh God. Help us to be filled, those of us who are again and again empowered by the spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Those who have not will continue to seek you until they are, knowing that this is a gift for them. And we pray that, Lord, today our students will, con uh, every student here will continue to grow and to be given your wisdom for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, 